0: This episode of Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. Welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest on today's broadcast is Terry Bordeaux, PhD, the Vice President of Training and Development for PracticeWise, LLC, whose mission is to advance how evidence and information are used to improve the lives of children and families. Dr. Bordeaux serves on the practice-wise executive management, professional development, and services and products development teams. She received her BA in psychology and her MA and PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Tulsa. She completed a psychology internship in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University Medical School and a Pediatric and Clinical Psychology Postdoctoral Fellowship at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Dr. Bordeaux was an Associate Professor of Behavioral Sciences at the Oklahoma State University Center for Health Sciences and also engaged in private practice prior to assuming her current position with PracticeWise. So Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Bordeaux and what she's up to at PracticeWise. Thank you so much, Greg. And Terry, welcome to Pop Health Week.
1: Thanks, Fred. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure
2: to have you on. Very excited about today's show. Talk about mental health, an important issue for myself and friends and others in this field. So give us a little bit of your background, Terry, and also a little bit about practice-wise.
1: Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist, so got my doctorate in Oklahoma, spent a lot of time in Oklahoma, and worked primarily with youth um, and adolescents, children, Also worked with um, adults, um, older adults um, during my career. So private practice, faculty at the university, have served on different boards, part of the Oklahoma Psychological Association, president there, chair of the board of examiners, psychologists. So we've been on the medical advisory committee of the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority, you know, Medicaid provider for the use. So done a lot of different things, a lot of public speaking about obesity and health related issues, because my uh, primary interest was really that interdisciplinary care um, integration with primary care and worked with a lot of youth with medical conditions.
2: And a little bit about practice wise, how you ended up there and uh, what they do in your role.
1: Yeah, practice wise. So I was a student in one of the founders' lab um, when I was an undergrad and also as a graduate student. And um, he founded a company, he and his um, colleague, Bruce Shorpita, um, where they recognize the importance of evidence-based practice, as many do, um, just like medicine, we should um, expect evidence-based practice for children, right? So they recognize that providers could not be trained in all of the evidence-based practices. And so they um, created a way for you to get access to all of that, kind of like an up-to-date in medicine for folks that understand the medical kind of literature. And I became interested as a consultant, basically, to them. And they invited me to come out to Florida, where... Um, operations were centralized. And it was a, you know, hard uh, offer to refuse um, to come out to Barrier Reef Island in Florida, because I'm getting to now work with providers all over the country and really all over the world. We have users of their products and services all over the world.
2: So this whole concept of bringing evidence-based practice, whether it's in the medical side, the mental health, behavioral side, is is critical. How do you manage to do that? Obviously, there's a lot going on all the time, a lot of expanding evidence. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, they were really innovative, honestly, in the mental health field for children. Um, I believe adults will get here. Um, But they really took all of that um, research and all of those articles, those peer-reviewed journal articles on evidence-based treatments for youth um, in 11 target areas for 0 to 18 and coded it down to smaller parts, such that um, clinicians and providers could, from their office, from their home office, um, go right into the database and do a search um, for anxiety, eight-year-old female, and see which treatments have been demonstrated to be the most effective. So they coded them not just for the parts, but also at what level of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. You have access to thousands, you know, a thousand protocols of evidence-based practice and those common parts.
2: So given that there's obviously all these articles you have available, this is the evidence for this area and that, how do you make it into a system where somebody can then implement that into their practice?
1: Yeah, so you're right. Like you have the information now, what do I do with it? Practice-wise, we have lots of different tools. So we have, we have created practice guides such that we can teach providers how to do those common parts of those treatments like, relaxation, cognitive for anxiety, cognitive for depression, psychoeducation, any variety of those kinds of elements, right? Goal setting, monitoring, self-monitoring. So we've created practice guides, which are basically two-page how to do it. And then we also train them on how to do those. We train them on how to use that database. We train them how to Um, organize their practices based on that evidence and also all of the things they learn in graduate school that are important. All the things that are very unique and tailored to a youth. Um, How to consider diversity um, as a part of treatment. Where does it fit in? Um, How do I consider adapting process and content? So we really teach them how to think about Um, the youth that's in their office and really use those evidence bases to treat them. And then we teach them how to do those practices. And we also teach them, Fred, how to track their progress, which is so important in this process is I've got a good plan. It's based on good evidence, but am I tracking it to see if it's working? Because if it's not working, then it's not a great plan, right? Or perhaps I'm not doing it in the way that it was intended to be done.
2: So you've added that outcomes measurement piece to the, the broader system.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and we see that as really vital and critical to the success of treatment um, because I can have a really good plan and if I don't check in to see how it's working, um, it won't matter if I delivered it beautifully if the youth is not less anxious. And I don't want to wait six months to assess them to see if my anxiety treatment plan is working, right? So mm-hmm. we provide providers how to do that regularly, frequently, and in a way that provides feedback As they're engaged in treatment,
2: we've seen on the medical side that you look at a certain condition, say diabetes, and you see a fairly substantial number of providers not necessarily practicing according to evidence based guidelines. How does that, or how good or bad is that in the mental health area?
1: That's a really good question. Um, We definitely find that in the mental health area, um, and that the type of treatment. Um, how it's implemented varies a great deal um, where when we're in areas where there have been initiatives taken to introduce evidence based practice to try to standardize to some extent, um, I think you see the uptake and the implementation of those evidence based practices higher than in areas where there aren't initiatives, there aren't policies, you know, there aren't procedures in place to make that happen. That's one thing I would say. And that it depends on training programs and getting this into those training programs and educating students in, you know, the multiple social science disciplines, right, how to do this while they're in school so they come out knowing how to use evidence to guide care.
2: And these providers who are out there using the system, have you been able to document better results from that or have there been yes. studies on that?
1: Yeah. So there um, there are some articles, there are some studies. Um, we had a very large initiative out in L.A. County, which is perhaps the largest or one of the largest right counties um, in the nation and probably serve as many youth in that county as anywhere, where in L.A. County, they were required to do evidence-based practice for youth. And MAP was one of the um, practices that was, or models, I should say, that was on the list of approved um, practices. And so there um, has been an article about that in particular, as well as other articles that have demonstrated um, not only positive outcomes, but also provider satisfaction, which is one of the challenges, right, is getting providers to be satisfied with what they're doing because some providers say if they're over scripted, if they're over manualized, there's no longer them in the therapy room, you know, with the youth and MAP really gives them that. It gives them the ability to be flexible.
2: Mm-hmm. And could you explain to our audience what MAP is?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, good question. You're like a MAP. It's, it's, you know, this thing I follow to get from point A to point B. In our world, that's called managing adapting practice. And it really just is all of the tools that I described about the database those practice guides, those coordination models, those resources, that clinical dashboard or that tracking tool that helps us monitor the practices we're using to help us make those decisions.
2: Mm -hmm. You talked about provider satisfaction and one of the areas we're seeing now is this whole impact of COVID on everybody. How is it impacting the field of mental health and and particularly with children? Oh,
1: wow. Um, So it's interesting. I've been watching a lot of things, and I follow a lot of um, different news sources. Um, And that's one of the things I would say is it's almost information overload. That's part of what our model tries to help people do is um, detect signal from noise. So I have to do that myself when I'm out there. But the surveys really have um, that looked at COVID initially were definitely mental health. Rate of anxiety, rate of depression went up. And that wasn't just for youth or children. Um, That's also for um, transitional age youth, which would be like 18 to 25. Um, I've even seen rates up to 36. And surprisingly, they didn't go up quite as much for adults or older adults who might be more vulnerable. So that was a pretty interesting finding. So they went up, um, when I was looking at surveys that have been put out by multiple sources um, more recently, because of course now we're looking at it how many months later, Um, It looks like that some of those rates are starting to come back down, which actually speaks to the resilience of people, right, that we have this initial thing that changes our lives. It could seem semi-traumatic, you know, economic, um, changed our lives economically, social distancing, isolation, rates of abuse for folks that are at home now where domestic violence was already high, but now you're stuck at home with perpetrators. But what we're seeing is some of those rates, it looks like in the surveys, are coming back down, but not completely down to where it was before. And it wasn't zero before. doubt that COVID has had an effect and is probably going to have a somewhat lasting effect. But I have to emphasize that there is some resilience we see, especially in children, and especially Mm -hmm. caregivers are managing well.
2: And we talk a lot about, obviously, the the children, the people experiencing this. But as you mentioned in the call we had beforehand, everybody's touched by this. So where do you go? How is it impacting therapists in their work?
1: Yeah, that, you know, I really appreciate that question because I meet with providers weekly right now on consultation calls. So I'm getting to see this from the lens of all over the country, you know, big city, rural areas. And it's um, avoiding no one, (laughs) So I would say everybody I'm talking to is zoomed out, tired of being online, or some of the providers, especially like school based providers, they are finding that they're spending time doing things they don't typically do at the start of a a year, they're having to help get kids on camera, because kids aren't showing up to school on zoom. Mm -hmm. So see that as disruptive behavior right if they're not showing up or is it a caregiver issue or is it an accessibility issue with computers um so when you ask how it's affecting providers it's changing the nature of what they do at least in the short term um because their job description and in some ways their role has changed a bit with the teams
0: and if you're just tuning in you're listening to pop health week our guest is dr terry bordeaux vice president of training and development for florida-based practice wise we discuss the impact of COVID 19 on the nation's mental health with an emphasis on youth and their families
2: and how has this move you talk about zoom fatigue and all those kinds of issues how has this moved to i don't necessarily have my therapy session face to face in the in the office moving it to an online perspective. Have you seen any influence of that?
1: Yes, actually, you know, there's the challenges with that, right? I mean, it's very different to talk to you, Fred, you know, over the radio, as opposed to if we were sitting down and having a meal together or sharing a cup of a coffee. Um, So I definitely think that um, changes the nature of the relationship. But I will say that some of the positive is um, many providers are reporting that caregivers are now more engaged in part because they're home with these youth. So they don't have to take time off to work to come to a session. They don't have to try to fit it into their schedule. So while there are the challenges of getting um, families engaged, Mm -hmm. there are also some benefits to that. And I should note there is the potential for disparity, though, to increase Mm -hmm. when you have the technology, you know, challenges for some families that just don't have access to the Wi-Fi and the computers that run smoothly.
2: Yeah, it's those technology gaps that we're seeing across the spectrum in terms of COVID-19 and the pandemic and how it's impacting those who don't have access to the resources or their communities have been redlined from a internet connection perspective and things like that. Obviously, that's a major point. Is there any approaches that you would have to do, and I'm asking this as a layperson, differently in terms of approaching somebody with a counseling session telehealth-wise versus face-to-face? Are there things you extra can learn or can't quite figure out because of that type of a modality
1: for sure I would say that there are different considerations you have to make um, the evidence is pretty robust that you can do therapy quite successfully by telephone we've been doing it by telephone for many years um, by telehealth video conferencing so you certainly can do it successfully There are a couple of things that have to be kept in mind. Well, probably many, but engagement is probably slightly different if you've never fully engaged with someone in person and now you're online and it's a brand new connection. But there are a lot of folks that are digital natives. You know, they were born on a computer and a lot of our kids like the screen and and are able to adapt to that quite well. Technology gaps and shifts and disconnects and, you know, some of the technical difficulties I would say is a, a slight barrier at times that can be pretty disengaging. You're trying to share very openly, you know, about what's going on in your life. And then it, you know, the Wi-Fi goes down right in the middle of you talking about that and you're trying to reconnect. Um, So certainly that can be challenging. Um, But overall, I would say many of the practices and we've been doing some webinars on that at PracticeWise, lots of folks have been wonderfully generous all over the nation and world about putting out free videos about how to do it. And how to bring telehealth, whether it's activity selection for depression, relaxation, and in some ways, honestly, to be creative, let's get some apps out for relaxation. How can we use those together online, maybe more than we have in the past?
2: And I would imagine, too, that because everyone's stuck in the house or in the in the apartment or wherever they might be, that, yes, the issue is the parents can be there as well and not have to drive them to an appointment or take off time potentially from work. But also, I would think there might be some issues around confidentiality and trying to find a place where you can feel comfortable and maybe away from the other people in your in your location.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that actually is a double-edged sword because you want them to have the confidentiality you also as a therapist I think about so many adolescents I saw who were potentially suicidal and I certainly might be concerned about being on a session having this confidential we're talking about distressing things and do I have you know all of the ethical considerations made you know legalities do I have the parent within you know contact do I have a cell phone I know some wow. providers have had some concerns right about doing some of that therapy you know telephonically or by video conference but um, overall, there are lots of folks are doing workarounds and working that through.
2: How has the interaction been? I know over time there sort of was for a while, maybe still this split between the medical side of psychiatry and the, and the counseling and therapy side associated with psychology and social workers and others. How has that become integrated better, perhaps in terms of children and treatment for them, those that might require medications versus straight therapy?
1: You know, I think it depends on um, training programs and perhaps people's perceptions and perspectives, but there's zero doubt that um, the literature is pretty robust for, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapies, many types of psychosocial treatments, interventions that have been demonstrated to be effective. So I think the medical community doesn't overlook that. um, And I think they do value, hey, I don't want to just prescribe you something when I know there are these really great tools that could work, maybe in absence of medicine or in addition to it, Um, you were talking about diabetes a minute ago. It makes me think about, you know, youth who are experiencing you know, have type one diabetes for an example, and absolutely that's health behavior, right. And regulating that, but how much do their moods and emotions impact their ability to take their insulin, you know, with their food and to manage that well, So I would say that the medical profession, my experience has been that um, folks are pretty interested, enthusiastic. Now I think it's a matter of getting payers (laughs) to value mental health um, treatment and the importance of that as being integral to physical health.
2: Yeah, it's something Greg and I have talked about for a while, Terry, is the whole funding schemes throughout healthcare, et cetera, and obviously in the mental health arena, it's been underfunded for years, we get the Mental Health Parity Act in, and now we at least have a push to try and get equal funding. I think your concept as you talk about it, ultimately, it needs to be an integrated approach. You think about that type one diabetes patient seeing their physician for their diabetes. Well, a lot of the impact of their success or failure with that may have to do with some mental health issues and how you work together to help that person, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that You know, Fred, you said is, you know, I would often have, you said mental health issues, which makes me think about some of the youth that would be sent to me by their endocrinologist, you know, their diabetes doctor, and they would say, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me mentally. You know, I'm fine. I'm like, of course you are. And at the same time, anybody would find it challenging to have not had diabetes for 12 years of your life and then to be diagnosed with something where now every time you put a piece of food in your mouth, you have to consider, do I have to take insulin? And how much insulin and then I have to be like this master mathematician, you know, to try to calculate how many carbs are in my food, you know, how much protein, how much physical activity am I going to get later. So I think that's the other piece of it is really destigmatizing support, psychological support, mental health supports and mental and emotional well-being as being just absolutely critical for physical well-being. When we can get over that, people will just, you know, there be, should be a psychologist or mental health professional probably in every clinic.
2: Right, and we talk about that from a primary care practice perspective is integrating in psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals into the practice to provide that full continuum of services because what you're giving people are, are tools and other resources that they can then use to be, uh, be to better able to manage their conditions, their well-being, their overall health. So that whole integration seems to be critical.
1: Yeah, and you made a point um, that I used to actually make to some of the young people I saw is I um, would emphasize that diabetes meant that it got health behavior on their radar early. And that frankly, if some people would get health behavior on their radar earlier, they could establish healthier habits and have less challenge with eating things that were less healthy. But my body and my metabolism can manage that, right? So I say to them, many of you will be healthier because you have had to manage that. It has not been an option. It's been life or death for you. But you're focused on it now and empowered and really watching those youth come into my office, um, not liking this diagnosis, but learning how to manage it well and live well and be amazing athletes and artists and students and educators has just been fantastic.
2: Yeah, now you're speaking my language of if we can get (laughs) early health behaviors in place, we can push back the incidence of these chronic conditions and hopefully let people live healthier for a much longer period of time.
1: Yeah, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. How how many times have I said, you know, all high functioning people are walking around using effective like cognitive behavioral tools. You just probably don't know the names for them.
2: Where do you see this going now in terms of the distribution of evidence-based practice and people beginning to pick it up? Obviously, there's still room for growth in all the areas. Are, Are you seeing more people beginning to reach out and say, how can I get help around this? I've been out of, of uh, my PhD program for 10 years. I got to get back. You know, things change so rapidly. Are you seeing that kind of a transition in the mental health field or has it always been, we know we need to keep up with this stuff?
1: Yeah. So that's interesting. You say, we talk about this a lot. I think yes, providers um, know that evidence is important. And I think when they see it being effective, for their colleagues who are using those skills with other people, and they say, wow, I did exposure with a youth who had anxiety and it was like magic, you know, it just works so well. Um, Clearly you wanna be a provider who's um, well-versed in evidence-based practice. Um, I also think it's probably like anything, once we get out of graduate training, at times we're like, man, I studied my whole life, I know what I need to know. So I wouldn't say everybody's a lifelong learner in that regard. I think some people actually do feel like what they learned is working quite well. And frankly, maybe they are using evidence-based practice without going back and kind of verifying that they are. But I, I do think that, folks, it's on their radar. And it's certainly, I think the media can help us in that regard, getting the word out that it's important. And I think when families come in asking for it, And asking, are you trained in cognitive behavioral therapy? Are you trained in exposure for anxiety? Are you trained in interpersonal therapy? I do think providers then are very interested Mm -hmm. in making sure they're giving their clients the best care.
2: With everything that's going on with COVID-19 right now and the kids out of school or some are partially in school, the resources, what would you recommend maybe one or two things we should be doing to ensure we maximize their opportunities to succeed over the long run
1: you know it's one or two um, but one comes to mind a lot and you've already heard me talk about it a little bit and i would say that's behavioral activation getting up and get moving we're just moving around a whole lot less and we know inactivity can be both a cause and effect of depression so for those who were depressed before it's certainly not helping for those who weren't depressed before you know, there's the potential for it to cause them to be depressed just because you're sitting around a great deal. So one thing is, um, you know, I can't emphasize enough, just increasing movement, getting up, getting away, taking those breaks, walking. And I often say it doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to use the term exercise, although that would be beautiful, wonderful to get the heart rate up for 20, 30 minutes. I'm um, just moving more is going to be particularly helpful. The other thing is monitoring. I think just being aware as those people Being aware of our own selves, self-monitoring, like monitoring our own mood, our own behaviors, our own activities, and what's bringing us pleasure and what's not, and how we're feeling, and then monitoring, you know, our young, you know, our young people around us. How are they doing? And are there things that we can change in the environment, perhaps, that would um, help them feel better um, and improve their mood and their functioning academically, socially, occupationally?
2: Well, that's fantastic. And I think the studies are beginning to bear out in terms of COVID that outdoor activities are inherently safer than indoor. Obviously, you still need to look at social distancing and spacing, but we can get outside and walk around and do those kinds of activities, which, as you point out, are so helpful. Terry, we're coming up on October. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. Are you doing anything special at wise?
1: Fred, we try to um, post Um, as often as we can about mental health awareness. And we'll be doing that on our Facebook. And I will be writing a blog on LinkedIn, or a little post um, just to talk a little bit about COVID um, and the impact it's had on youth and families. So if you go to www.practicewise.com, you can get more information about that and our other webinars there.
2: Terry, I really want to thank you for coming on Pop Health Week this week. You've been fantastic, a great guest with fantastic information.
1: Thanks so much, Fred. Really fun to be here. appreciate you and all that you do.
0: It's our pleasure, and I'll send it back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Terry Bordeaux, Vice President of Training and Development for PracticeWise, for her time and generous insights today during this Mental Health Awareness Month. For more information on Dr. Bordeaux or PracticeWise's work, go to www.PracticeWise.com. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters saying, Please stay safe, everyone. We are in this together, and we will only get through this together. If we toe the line on social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, do wear those masks when in public. Bye now.